Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you please look with me again in Matthew 24, and will you read with me verses 36 to 41. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the day, in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left, two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Let's read verse 42 as well. Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Well, brothers and sisters, we, I suppose, could be pretty much anywhere tonight. No one is compelled or required to assemble to hear a sermon at the closing hours of the passing year, and yet some of us have chosen to do just that. A surprising thing that uh, we might consider from the world's point of view, that people would choose to come together at, at this time for another message, and maybe particularly so because Historically, tonight has been used as a warning sermon. And warnings are not always most pleasant to hear. And today, in much of the Christian church, it's, it's much more about what is tickling to the ears than what is sobering unto the mind and, and the heart that people yearn for. And yet I think there is wisdom in this. And I think God has a purpose for each person, whether they are here tonight or listening in, that they would hear a word from the scriptures as we see the hours passing and as we look ahead to the coming year as well. I'd ask that we consider these verses from Matthew 24 under the theme, as in the days of Noah. As in the days of Noah. And I think we'll see three thoughts from these verses. First, the conduct of the wicked. Second, the doom of the wicked. And third, the separation of the wicked. Matthew 24 is incredibly important as a chapter from God's Word. Of course, every part of God's Word is important. But here we have the Lord Jesus unfolding for us his words as to what will happen in the future. Maybe you notice in the early verses that the occasion is after the the disciples and Jesus have left the temple when Jesus has been instructing and rebuking the false teachers in the previous chapter. And he leaves the temple, and 
And as they're surveying everything in the temple, Jesus makes that astonishing claim, and well-founded, that there is coming the day where not one stone of that glorious structure will be standing upon the other. And so the disciples ask the question in verse 3, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So you can sort of see that there's really two facets of their question. Um, As it is uttered, one is, when will the temple be destroyed? And uh, when will your coming be and the end of the world? Now, I think probably in their minds, they expected these two things to happen at the same time because the temple of the Lord, well, if if that should be destroyed, if such a, a terrible judgment should befall the people of God, then that must mean the end of the world. And as Jesus proceeds to give a very developed answer throughout this chapter, what becomes apparent is he's addressing both of their questions at once. He's speaking about those things which will take place in a number of decades when the Roman Empire will destroy the temple and the city of Jerusalem. But as well, he's also speaking about the end of this world in which we inhabit and his coming in glory as the judge of the living and the dead. And there have been different ways to understand what portions of this chapter are referring to what, but I I think in some ways um, it kind of uh, misses the point. I think that if you would read a book like uh, Jonathan Edwards' The History of Redemption, he makes a strong argument that in a sense he's addressing both of them in one prophecy because they're connected one to the other, these two events. If we would understand what happened in 70 AD, we would see a sort of microcosm, a small picture of what will happen at the end. And so... It's, it's almost impossible to separate one from the other in what follows. But in our verses, the ones that we read at the beginning of this sermon, there really is a, a, a bit of a cosmic scope. These aren't things that can be localized to one place in the, uh, the early um, centuries after Christ's uh, first coming because they are spoken of as like or as the days of Noah. That great cataclysmic judgment that had impact upon this entire world is spoken of as an illustration, giving us spiritual principles for us to understand the second coming so that we would be prepared for it. And the first thing that we'll notice here about what Jesus says is the conduct of the wicked at the time of the second judgment. Verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Now, if you'll remember, that story of Noah from the book of Genesis records for us 
what was happening prior to the most catastrophic judgment that has ever befallen this earth. How are we to understand that time and, and what are the lessons that we can, can take? Well, obviously what Jesus is saying is that you're to think about how people were behaving, what it is they were doing, how they were conducting themselves. And you can take that and you can see how people will be behaving right before the second judgment. How was it that they were behaving? What was the conduct of the wicked who were destroyed in that judgment of the flood? Well, I think if you look at, at what we just read, the first thing that can be said is that they were, they were acting in a way that made perfect sense. The things that are spoken of here don't seem that heinous or awful on the surface, do they? They, in fact, seem perfectly logical, things that everyone needs to do. They are eating and they're drinking. They're sustaining their bodies through food and water. So they're taking care of their physical needs and as well as the needs of their families. So the most basic needs of families as they've, they've existed are finding spouses for, for our children. That's been very important for, for people throughout all of history. So they're, um, they're giving away their, their sons and daughters to be married and they're making plans for the future. Families are beginning and starting and continuing and having children and one generation follows the other. And, and so you can see that the behavior that's spoken of here, if, if you look at it from a certain angle, it's simply the issues of life, the things that we all have to do and be concerned with, things that from one point of view are not sinful at all. That's what... The wicked, those who are destroyed at the coming of Jesus Christ, will be occupied with. I think we do well to recognize this. That there is a, a sort of Christianity that is content with a sort of very surface level morality. If someone is not creating a great scandal, it seems to be going with the program and, and leads what you call a basically respectable life, they would think, well, that is all that Christianity is. And perhaps that's because um, you look at the world around us and there's such a, an abandonment of any basic standards of decency that we'd say, well, if you're not quite at that low level of immorality, then there's, there's reason for good, good hope. And yet, the picture here tells us that that's not, not quite good enough. The, the picture that is, is portrayed here is people who are given over to their business, to their concerns, and yet they don't really have a view towards God's claims upon their life. They're not concerned about what God would say about them. They're not concerned about living for him at all. And in that, we can come to see that the things that are spoken of here, they do embrace the, the great 
mass of humanity that exists in this nation and nations around the world, people who are doing what is right in their own eyes and yet not having much concern for the Lord. But it can also just as well embrace those who are in the visible church who have only a surface morality. It is not something that is in the heart. There is not a devotion and consecration unto their creator and redeemer. There is not a heart that goes out to the living God in delight and wonder and reverence and true obedience. So that it's a very searching thing, this, this first note that we see, just the, the, the rationality of it, right? The, it makes perfect sense that you'd be occupied with these things, that you wouldn't really be thinking about the, the end times. You wouldn't be thinking about eternity. You wouldn't be thinking about Judgment Day because you think about yesterday and the last week and the last month. And assuming that we haven't, personally been thrown into a crisis, we can sort of think that things are, are going to be much the same tomorrow as they were yesterday. But surely we, we of all people, would know that's not true. That in an instant, your life can take such a turn and even be snuffed out in terms of your physical life. And, and you can stand before God and, and everything is laid out. There is the judgment. course awaiting that final judgment when all things will be revealed as the books are opened where is it that we stand congregation you and I on this final day of this year well that's the first thing we see about their conduct the other thing I would I would say is that their conduct was greatly offensive to God greatly offensive I think that's that's evident if you would not only look at what is recorded here by Christ's words, but also you would compare it with what Moses recorded in the book of Genesis. If you would look with me in, in the sixth chapter of Genesis, you see that some aspects of this time were especially drawn out. Notice how it, it goes there in chapter 6. And it came to pass... When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with men, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years." So what exactly is going on here? There's been some uh, debate. If you would look at the, the early church and the church fathers, uh, they have a, a rather uh, unusual interpretation that speaks of the sons of God referring to angels and some sort of union with the daughters of men, i.e. human beings. And if you would read the Reformed Church and what they have written about this, they would say to the contrary that the sons of God would refer to the godly, the people of God, and the daughters of men would refer to unbelievers. 
So either way, you're dealing with a, a very extreme sin that's involved here. They're not just giving away their sons and daughters in marriage, but there's something rather heinous, whether you consider it as some sort of union with the fallen angels or demons, or you would regard it as most Reformed uh, do as um, intermarrying with unbelievers. Either way, this uh, self-centered mindset, as opposed to a God-centered mindset, led them to gross and heinous transgression of the law of God. And so it is also in our own day. The laws of God are trampled underfoot. Yes, in the world we see that whether in government or in culture or in society, yes, the law of God is, is profaned in, in countless ways. But can we really say that this is absent also from the visible professing church? In your own life, if you would lay up before the Lord all the things that you occupy your day with, and the Lord would really apply the spiritual character of his commandments, can you say that you are free from the abominations that his law prohibits? Those of thought, those of word, those of deed. Who we are in secret is who we are in truth. You can put up a facade and, and a certain veneer of of true godliness when you're in a building like this. But how is it, how is it throughout the week in your own time? Are there things that the Lord knows about? Well, indeed, greatly offensive was the sin of the people in those days. Look in verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he looks at everything that comes from the heart of men and says, all of these thoughts, in one respect or another, they're tainted with sin. It is sin that they think of. It is sin that emanates from within a corrupt and wicked and perverse generation. And so it is. Not only greatly offensive to God was their sin, but it was one that brought the judgment of God upon them. And so there in verses 11 to 13 of this chapter, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And so the, the Hebrew words there, are, they're sort of directing us towards what is perverse and what is unjust. People given over to great cruelty and malice. And then we read on, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way before the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This was how it was. In the days before the flood, this was how the conduct and behavior of humanity brought such things to pass. But so also today. Do we really think that all of the 
the ways in which our world ignores God and slanders God and blasphemes God, all of the ways in which we live as though we were little gods prancing about this earth, able to do with it whatever we please, able to live our lives in whatever way suits our fancy. Do we imagine that all of this heinous rebellion going on before the very sight of God, that it can pass unnoticed forever? Do we really imagine that such a world can go on and on and on and on and never receive the just comeuppance which is most due? No. Congregation, this world is being stored up for wrath, for burning fire. The day is coming, and it is coming soon, when Jesus Christ, as the instrument and representative of a holy God, will issue forth his perfect wrath upon the wicked. And indeed, all men shall mourn if they are outside of Christ on that day. And they will cry out to the, to the very mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And that goes for those who are in the professing church as well. There's not one person who will be exempt from that judgment if all they have is a surface Christianity, if they are indeed those hypocrites who live one way outside of church and one way within the assembly, then they have nowhere to hide nor escape. Only those who are truly united to Christ and issue forth the fruits of repentance and holiness, only these will stand on that great and terrible day. But we see not only the conduct of the wicked, but as well the doom of the wicked. The great doom. The terrifying consequences that are held forth in this passage. What is it that we see in verse 38? For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. This doom is spoken of in in a very straightforward way, but when you really read it and face it, there's something most terrifying and dreadful about it. And, and what is it that we see? Well, the first thing I think we can say is that it's utterly unanticipated. Utterly unanticipated. You see, they, they say, in, in, or rather Jesus says in verse 39, that they knew not until it was upon them. They weren't aware of it. They didn't perceive it. They didn't expect it. They hadn't planned for it. It's as though it never entered into their mind. They were going about their life, going one day after the next, and it just came upon them. And is that because there was no warning? Is it because there was no opportunity to turn and repent and to seek the Lord's mercy? Oh, it was not, not so. If 
For example, you would read from the book of 2 Peter in the second chapter, you'd know that this godly man Noah, set apart by God's saving covenant and promise, was one who found grace and favor in the eyes of God, that he had been appointed by the Lord as a preacher of righteousness. He was not one who kept the coming judgment to himself. No, he uttered forth the reality of that, and he warned that wicked generation. He said that judgment is coming, that God is real, that God sees, that God hears, that God is aware, and God will ask for a just recompense of reward and indeed visit that reward upon all the evildoers who slander and profane against God and his holiness. They were warned, warned of the coming judgment, not only because they heard the preaching, but also because of this this monstrous ark that God commanded to to be made. I remember my wife and I, we traveled down to to Kentucky at one point, and we saw how Ken Ham, he's, he's somehow managed to recreate the thing to the exact specifications of the Bible, and it's like multiple football fields long, and, and it just is like this huge thing that you see in the skyline, and they've, they've meticulously spaced out how you could fit all the different animal and, and, uh, and other life that Noah was called to preserve, as well as the place for, the, for his family and so forth. An, an amazing testimony of, of God's wisdom and grace in preserving a remnant of the human race. But if you would have seen that over the 120 years in which it was created, and you start to see sort of the, the wooden beams take shape and see Noah and his family pounding away at, at the exterior and giving themselves unto this this great creation, and, and however it was, the Lord gave him strength and wisdom to, to carry that great feat out. And it was a, a sort of standing rebuke against that generation. That judgment is coming, that though there's never been a single drop of rainfall in the past, that it will indeed come. And so it will be. It will be when the Lord returns that there will not be one person who's able to say on that day that they had no idea that, that God was wrathful against sin, that, that indeed he is a just judge and that judgment is coming. And if we can say that God has revealed something of his character to the consciences of everyone, then certainly we can say that those here in this church, they have no cause for complaint on that day. You've heard warnings from this pulpit, from many preachers. Many preachers have have spoken to you and have pled with you and have said that you have a soul, that you must die. And and one way or another, we're all going to be there standing before the judge on that day. And how will it be? Will you be on the right hand with those who are gathered together into the bosom of Christ and welcomed into his heavenly glory? Or is it the case? Is it the case that because of your stubborn refusal and resistance to the gospel, that you, even you, will be on the left hand on that day 
among those who are cast away into outer darkness? Could it be that even those here today will not be prepared on that great and terrible day of the Lord's coming? Well, it's fearful to contemplate, fearful for me to look you in the eyes and say that as much as I love you, as much as I desire that each and every one of who hears my voice would be prepared, that we must face the fact, we must face the fact that this is something we have to deal with in our own souls and bended knee before the throne of grace. We need to search out ourselves and find out if we are in the faith. We need to see those marks of grace in our lives and know of a truth that we are prepared for that day. Well, indeed, the, it was unanticipated, this judgment, and, and so it shall be from the final judgment. And I think it's, it also does well if we would look back in the book of Genesis, now in the seventh chapter, to see that it was most supernatural, this judgment, an act of divine power in chapter 7 verse 11 in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month the 17th day of the month the same day were all the foundations of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights astonishing thing amount of moisture and, and rain that we can't even fathom. It just seems as though the, the whole earth, both from, from the ground and from the sky, is, water is coming from everywhere. And, and all, all of a sudden, it's, it's consuming the earth in this great body of water. It's not something that you can entirely account for or explain, or at least I haven't, haven't been able to as I've thought about how this could have happened. But one thing I know, and that is that God's power is not constrained by our human understanding. That the reason why we have Bibles and preachers is to remind us that the things that we see around us and the things that you can read in scientific periodicals that these are not the limits of what God can do. Yes, he has the natural order of things, the regular pattern of seasons and temperatures and, and the physical existence that we see around us, but it's all at God's good pleasure. And in an instant, his power can be unleashed in everything that we see around us and take for granted. Even our tiny little lives, it can be be extinguished and a new reality put in its place. Just as the Lord could consume this world in water, so also he can do the same. He can do the same with fire. Let us not doubt it, congregation. God will not be inactive. Indeed, he's never inactive, but his great miraculous activity will be manifested on that great day of the Lord's coming. Final thing I'd say under this heading is that it is inescapable. Inescapable, this, this flood. And so also, the coming judgment. Look at verse 21. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl or, or bird, and of cattle, and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, 
and every man. All in the, whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things, and so on. Yes, Noah was preserved alive. Yes, Noah was kept safe there in the ark under the protective hand of the Lord. But all of those people would have drowned. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of maybe you're in a pool, you're swimming somewhere, and you and you start to actually take on water, and you, you take a great big gulp, and and you suddenly you start to panic, and you have difficulty breathing, and that would have been the experience of every single person who was alive in those days drowning, dying a terrible death, but one that was deserved. It was deserved because their lives had the purpose of glorifying God. They were image bearers of God who had rejected their purpose and turned against their creator and despised his commandments. And so, as the wages of sin is death, God acted most justly as judge. And so also, on that day, it will be as just as inescapable, just as terrible, indeed, infinitely more so on the day of judgment for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying these things in order, in order to get some perverse pleasure of really piling on, but shall we not see, shall we not see that these things must be taken to heart? There's not any escape hatch. There's not a single loophole that can allow any any to escape this judgment, but the one that God appointed. God created that ark. He gave the opportunity to escape, and the door was open for anyone who would come in and receive the deliverance. So also today, the door is open. Christ has come unto us in his gospel, and he has said, why will you die, sinner? I take no delight in the death of the wicked. Why will you perish when you may live and receive forgiveness and eternal life through myself? Flee unto that ark congregation. Flee unto Jesus Christ as the cover of safety in the coming wrath. And he will protect you. Blessed are all they who put their trust in him, it says in the second psalm. On the third and final thought, congregation, let's consider briefly the separation of the wicked. There in verses 40 to 41. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Now we say just in passing that those who of the school of prophecy interpretation called dispensationalism. They would abuse these uh, verses quite badly to justify what's called a secret rapture. And the idea uh, here is that all of the elect are sort of uh, caught up and vanished and a long tribulation ensues in which the ungodly remain behind on the world. 
But of course, if we would just think for a moment what Jesus is saying, that this is like unto the days of Noah, and we would ask ourselves, who was it that was taken in the days of Noah? Was it the wicked or the godly? Was it the great mass of fallen and rebellious humanity, or was it Noah and the ark? Well, we'd say that those floods, they took away and removed the wicked, while the, the godly were those who remained on the earth. And so the idea here is that it's the elect of God who remain and inherit the new heavens and the new earth after they're purified by fire, but it's the wicked who are cast away into outer darkness. And I just notice for you, can, can we really see the fact of this separation? Yeah, the illustration here is you've got two women and uh, they're there in the field preparing food together. And then one is taken and the other is left. And you've got one grinding the flour in order to prepare bread. And one is taken and the other remains. They're doing the similar sorts of people. They're doing similar sorts of things. One is taken and the other remains. There is that cleaving asunder of of people who are joined together in this life, whether in churches or in communities or in families, those who are outside Jesus Christ, they are taken away and cast away into everlasting darkness. There is no guarantee that because you are in the company among those who will remain to inherit the new heavens and the new earth, that you will be numbered among them. What matters is that you are united with God's elect in resting upon the promises of the gospel, even Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's a fact, this separation. And it is one that is most final. It's very final as you see it. One shall be taken and the other left. There is that great division and separation which can never be undone. And you know, it's, it's sometimes the case, isn't it, that in a, a particular relationship or a particular uh, life, that how it ends really defines everything that happened before. That you can think you have a certain relationship with someone and then it sort of takes a turn and then all of a sudden, all of the memories that you used to recall with them of happy times, they take on a sort of tragic turn. Why? Because their meaning is utterly different now that you know how the story ends. And so it is also with our very lives. Everything about us, it is defined and sealed by how we will be found on that final day, whether it will be among those who are taken or those who remain. So the most urgent need that every single one of us has is to know with certainty that we are in Jesus Christ. If not for your own sake, will you take this seriously for those who love you? For those who are appointed over your care in the consistory, for those who are in your family, will you take care to your soul and see to it 
That's, even if you never have before, you will take earnest care to plead with Jesus Christ to rescue you from the wrath to come. And do not stop until he gives you that firm persuasion that yes, not for anything you have done, but only for the sake of his perfect righteousness, you are secure even for eternity. Just leave you with those final words that you see there at the end of the passage. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. There always needs to be that urgency because we simply don't know. You know, I have particular views about prophecy and, and sometimes it's very complicated how it is it all will, will play out um, near the end. But I'll tell you something. I have no certainty that it won't be even this year, even this year that Jesus Christ should return. And if you should have heard such a sermon as this and be unprepared, then I, I don't know what to say. I do not want to have to testify against you on that day. Will you please, will you please become serious? And will you please take what has been said here for your eternal good? Flee into Christ and be saved. And let us be an undivided family on that great day.